0: His hand sped out of the fog. It clutched and clawed violently, like a blind man suddenly without his cane. The drugs were filling his head with rocks and cotton. His mouth was desert-dry. His tongue leapt to catch the salty tears, the taste mingling gingerly with the coppery blood from gnawing nervously on the inside of his cheek. His memories would not shut up. "'Once more into the breach,' he yelled as he thrust his sex into hers. "'I love it when you talk dirty,' she panted, with a curt smile perched perfectly on her delicate face. I think Shakespeare wrote that, or I heard it in a submarine movie. I can't remember which. Her giggle turned into soft moaning. That same moaning started to ebb and wane, finally finding its crescendo in simultaneous climax. His eyes found hers, the sweat glistening on both their skins, and made him think she was made of pure radiant luminescence in the soft light that weakly poured through the bedroom window. This isn't right, he screamed. He thought his throat would rupture, Droning on his own blood would be better than this, he thought. The cell walls seemed uncaringly cold as any winter. He was alone, and the police had taken his belt and shoelaces. His wallet said said his name was Philip Summers. The ID had his correct address, just not the right dimension. The night before, when he'd wandered out drunk, heading home to the perfect woman in the perfect bed, he made an imperfect turn. He made his way down the wrong alley to relieve himself in, That bright light, Philip's hand, leaving his still urinating self to shield his eyes. He thought about ruining his pants. He thought about her. When he woke up, it was in that same alley, or so he thought. The sun was warm on his oily skin, sweating out the previous night's whiskey. His clothes were wrinkled, and he was pretty sure that smell was him. He hefted himself up from the completely uncomfortable position he had passed out in. His back was crookedly sore, and he promised himself he would return to that bar. He stumbled back to the apartment. He was sure she was snoozing away the early morning. He fumbled with his keys, his fingers acting like drunk, injured spiders. He put the key in the lock and briefly thought of sex. The key wouldn't turn in the lock. He tried vainly twice more. A cigarette-ravaged voice erupted from the other side of the door. I'll kill you, and if I open this door and see you, you're fucking... I'll fucking annihilate you, fucker. The words rang hollow against his sleep-deprived brain. Why was their apartment filled with this filth? His fist rang thunderous against the door. It's Phil. Just let me in. Philip Summers heard her voice for the first time again. Phil? She sounded different. She sounded weak, defeated, confused. Not the wild tigress he had had before. Annie, come out and talk with me, please. The last word made him think of a dying dog or a rattlesnake's tail. He could hear the footsteps coming towards him. The deadbolt clicked, but the chain kept the door from opening all the way. What are you doing here? Philip could see her half-hiding behind the half-open door. Her delicate features were marred with bruises. The deep purple and blue wounds punctuated what he knew immediately was wrong. Her unfocused eyes looked like she had been drinking, and her voice was slurred, every word swimming in concrete. What happened? Who's in there with you? She just stared at him. Looked as if she were resigned to whatever fate she had chosen. The cigarette-blasted voice thundered from the near distance. You tell him I'll kill him. I'll take him out and ground him into the sidewalk right now, cunt. She continued to stare at Philip, her eyes softly wrapped in tears. She closed the door and reset the locks. Philip could hear the voices pass through the door. He comes here again. I'll end the both of us. I fucking swear it. No one was there. Just calm down. Please, just go to sleep, okay? Philip walked away, his head hung low, his chin almost touched his chest, and his temples began to throb. I love you, Philip said, softly whispering as he stared into her eyes. Why do you stare at me like that, she asked. He was still over her, still inside of her. Because you're beautiful, you're smart and funny, and like better movies than me. Will you ever stop loving me, she asked. She turned slightly. He pulled himself from her and laid stomach down next to her. Until the end of the world, babe. That's from a comet." His sentiment was interrupted by her gentle kiss. He flung himself against where the metal door met the concrete. The sound of bone and flesh meeting harder surfaces made him feel sick, despite the pills that were numbing him. "'I'm not supposed to be here. Just let me go. I know how to get home,' he stated matter-of-factly. An unpaid and, frankly, apathetic guard haunted the cell's front. The shadow from the crossed mesh in the door's window confused Philip on who was in the real prison. "'You don't get to go home, asshole,' Those pants, that shirt, they still have blood on them. Philip looked down at himself. The blood the guard was referencing had turned from deep crimson to a tacky, dark brown. Home is going to be a nice, quiet in-state until we fry your fucking ass. Philip fell into himself, holding his knees to his chest with both of his arms. He could hear her when he'd called the apartment and she finally answered. No, I don't think I can see you tomorrow. I'll call you when I can. When you can? Is the phone company stopping you? He asked, half-joking. I don't understand, she muttered. Why do I have to see you again? Wait, what? Babe, I have to go. The sound of her hanging up reminded him of a gun hitting on an empty chamber. Until the end of the world, huh? She coquettishly asked. He stared at her despite his best efforts. Yeah, until the end of the world. Her eyes, half-closed, fell on to him. He could feel their warmth in his heart. What happens when the world ends? Well, that depends if it's zombies or robots that take us all out. She sighed. He had unhealthily obsessions about whatever apocalypse the summer blockbusters were selling this year. Okay, robot zombies attack and capture the entire human race. It's the end of the world, she said, baiting him. We assume Jedi don't exist? Because if they did, they'd totally save us. I think. Wait, why would zombies be robots? Or are the robots powered by the reanimated... She kissed him. She would be hard-pressed to admit if it was for the love she felt for him or just to shut him up. He broke away from her face and smiled if the world ended i would still love you damn straight she said laughing and climbing on top of him the drugs they kept feeding him started, started keeping his memories outside a striking distance he had to get out he had to get back to that alley he silently prayed really prayed for the first time in his life that the light that had brought him here would return him he thought of her curled up in the comforter with the sheets kicked to one side her peaceful head would be held by her pillow which was distinctive in that it was not his pillow. Her scent, that soft hint of high citrus notes, would have filled the room. He started to plot his escape and started to mutter something that sounded like, "'Ill view berry, see?' The same guard called to him, "'Get up, it's medicine time.' The guard handed him a small paper cup with different colored pills in it. Some of them had writing on them. Philip took the cup and went to the sink. He couldn't dump them while he was being watched. He shook the cup over his mouth, turned on the sink, and took a mouthful of water to swallow. As he quietly sat down on his cell bed, the drugs kicked in. He tried to hold on to whatever had gotten to him in this place. He didn't have anywhere to go after he had called, so he wandered the same different city streets until he could go into the bar that he had never drunk in again. He was the only person in the bar except for the bartender. The girl behind the polished oak wraparound was reading a battered copy of the man in the high castle. She didn't even bother to brush the bangs from her eyes and look up, let alone look interested. "'Let me guess, you don't belong here,' she said, licking her finger and turning a page of the book. The shock was shotgun-blasted on his face. "'And then you're gonna ask me how I know, and then you're gonna ask about how you get back. He just stood there. This girl knew. Somehow, she knew everything.' "'Well,' she said, finally looking up, not specifically at him. "'She moved like a tired cat. She poured a beer from the taps and placed it on the bar.' She then poured a shot of bourbon, placing it beside the beer. He sat down in front of the drinks. He hungrily slammed the shot and followed it with a long pull from the pint glass. The beer nicely quelled the fiery gravel the bourbon left down his sandpaper throat. So, he said, looking like a puppy that had been kicked, repeatedly. She rocked back and forth. She ground down on him like she was trying to find oil. Her gasps were punctuated by his moans and soft grunts, their hips working against themselves. He loved it when she was on top. His hands jumped to her breasts. Her gasp sharpened. This was what he jerked off to in the shower. He had read that what real love was, jerking it to your girlfriend or wife, and not some balloon-titted blonde with an airbrushed pussy in a magazine, while taking her from behind and playing video games at the same time. Or something like that. He looked up at her, her head thrown back, pulling the hair away from her face. That face. He knew he could wake up next to that face for the rest of his life when he first met her he was in real love. Then he came. I can't help you, stranger, she almost whispered. She turned another page of her book. The last three guys came in here this early, all had the same questions you do. I poured them their drinks and let them go. She sighed heavily. I'm not that kind of social worker. He got up and reached for his wallet. Her eyes meeting his made him stop. He nodded politely and walked out, squinting against the harsh afternoon sun. He went down the street Happy couples bustled by him and made him feel sick. He tried to pretend it was the alcohol. Through the boozy fuzziness, an idea sped out. He could feel it, like a hand striving against a riptide. It thrashed violently, trying to grasp, to claw something close to solidarity, to reality. He made his way back to the alley, the same alley that had stolen his life, that had stolen her. He paused, once he rounded the corner and was met with the same dead-end chain-link fence, the same smashed television sets. He wondered if he had to pee. He looked up at the sky. The sun looked like a bruised peach. The clouds were stretched cotton. Where was the light? Where was that light that had brought him to this ruined place, a place without her? The proper noun, her. She was in the apartment. She was tied there like a damsel against the train tracks. He would find her, take her from all of this. He would show her the life they were meant to lead. He zipped up his pants and made his way deeper into the city. Behind the door of the apartment, Phil could hear them fighting. He had something, it was something, to with how selfish she was. He could hear him ask her for money, more money by the sound of it. Phil's closed fist on the door brought an abrupt end to the screaming match. Annie answered the door. The chain clattered limply against the door. The deadbolt clanked sharply against its recess in the frame. Philip threw himself inside. The dimly lit apartment was sparsely furnished. The place was a graveyard of cigarette packs, empty beer cans, and liquor bottles. It reeked of failure. Annie just stared in disbelief, her mouth open and closed like a fish, suddenly finding itself out of water. The cigarette-blasted voice thundered from another room. What the fuck is going on out there? Philip's body flooded itself with adrenaline, his fingertips tingled, and he balled his hands into fists without thought. I'm taking you away from this. I don't know who the hell you are, but she doesn't belong to you. The source of the cigarette voice came into view. He was Philip's height and build. It was eroded by smoking, drinking, and rage, but his face was suspiciously close enough to Phil's to make him feel ill. Philip knew, then, that she was with him in this place, not the him that stood there trying to rescue Annie from a life of abuse and disappointment, but the him that had led her to this. She looked from Philip to the other Philip. The intruding Philip met her eyes, those eyes that could send him to war for her simply asking him to. In those eyes, he saw that she loved the man she lived with. In those eyes, he knew he would never tear her away from him, just like no one could tear her away in the world where they were together. Then everything went black. Through the drugs, he could hear her screams. He could feel his knuckles finding unwilling targets of flesh and bone. He could not stop himself. When he finally took a breath, he saw it all. The broken and pummeled other Philip, the lifeless Annie, He looked down and saw the blood on his hands and clothes that the guard had reminded him about later. He found a cell phone and called the police. He told them he had made everything right. They laid next to each other, slightly sticky from the drying sweat. She nuzzled his chest with hers. It tickled. So, can I go play video games now? She playfully slapped his bare stomach. What? I think I've earned it, he said, sporting a wry grin. Did you really mean it when you said about the end of the world... She readjusted her head to look at him, his neck craned to meet her longing gaze. "'No,' he stated matter-of-factly. "'Jedi couldn't save us if there were a mass outbreak of the undead, "'unless they were the slow ones from a Romero movie. "'Zombies, not the Jedi.' She laughed to spite herself. "'No, the other thing.' His smile steeled itself into absolute seriousness. "'I love you, Annie. "'Now until the end of the world. "'I have never meant anything so much in my entire life. "'I would kill for you if you asked.' I would walk wherever you asked just to get you whatever you wanted. Would you sell your comics? He looked pensive, as if the weight of the world had suddenly been set on his shoulders. That depends if our answers match, I guess. He hefted himself up, digging around the bedroom. The floor looked like ground zero if a clothes bomb had been deployed. He found his pants and reached his hand into a pocket, palming something secretively and returning to bed. He turned himself onto his side and smiled. What? What answers have to match? He opened his hand, and the light danced off the gold and splintered through the diamond, casting a soft kaleidoscope across her face. Will you marry me? He mumbled in his cell over and over like a mantra designed to keep him both sane and crazy. Through the fog, through the drugs, in his mind, he had made it home. That was A Self Called Nowhere, or The Rescuer, Crawling from the Wreckage. I'm Doug, and this is Mr. Wright. That was a lengthier piece than I've read before. I was a little... (laughs) Itchy about how long this episode would go, but I'm still very okay with it while I look at the uh, numbers that just keep going up. This one was also tricky to read because there are parts of it that are in in italics that does not come across when I read it. I tried to change my uh, timbre of voice, but once again, I don't think it came across, so I'm going to explain a little bit about this. The story is about Philip Summers, um, which is a Easter egg reference to not only Philip K. Dick, which I reference later on in the story with the man in the high castle uh, that the bartender is reading, but also Philip Summers. That would be a reference to Buffy Summers from Buffy the Vampire Slayer in the episode where um, Buffy is kind of flashing back between her life in Sunnydale or a insane asylum. Um, which is one of my favorite episodes, but once again, it's that kind of dual reality aspect that I was trying to Easter egg into. The parts uh, that are in italics are basically the sex scenes, which I'm going to talk about, um, because that's the point of this episode, which is why there's a smile, wink, and nod um, on the title called Thinking Outside the Box, box in quotes. I think I've talked about it before, where I had never written a sex scene uh, years ago, and then I was prepping to um, write my first novel, and I talked to a friend and a then-girlfriend and said, would you feel cheated if you're reading a book? And they skipped the sex scene, and they both went yes. So I ended up writing a piece called, I, don't, I think it was called Two Hearts. I don't remember the exact title of it, but basically the whole piece was a sex scene between these two characters to practice writing a sex scene. I obviously had become more accomplished at it Um, by the time I had written A Self Called Nowhere. The sex scenes are in the italics. It's him flashing back to his prime reality, I guess we'll call it. And basically, the whole point of this piece that I wanted to bring up on the show was when to use restraint, how to write about sex in a classy, not raunchy kind of way, not Harlequin novel, no reference to squelching noises, um, which you could do if it fit the piece. Um, it did not; would not have fit this piece. When he used restraint in a sex scene, is a lot of using a thesaurus, a lot of semantics when it comes to describing things. When I say he, you know, was inside of her, um, that's not raunchy. When you say, you know, he uh, thrust his sex into hers, I don't need to be explicit and say he put his hard cock in her wet vagina, uh, or sopping pussy, that's when you can show restraint. I know it's always fun to write the raunchy stuff, but once again, it's got to fit the piece. In terms of self-called nowhere, it was me using the restraint I'd already learned how to use. Practicing writing sex scenes is something that could benefit you, um, it's, once again, I talk about another tool in the toolbox, which does sound, uh, raunchy as well. This was, you know, I kind of broke it up uh, the sex by using humor in the, um, you know, uh, Once More Into the Breach, um, and he doesn't know if that's from a submarine movie or Shakespeare wrote it, stuff like that, and I tried to break up the sex with with descriptions of the, you know, the floor looking like a clothes bomb had gone off on it. I tried to describe what was going on around the sex as well as the sex, and that's something you can play with. Like I said, Write an entire sex scene just for fun, just to try to get it, and then reread it and go, Is this Harlequin or is this Penthouse? Or is this something where you could see it being in a novel or a short story? Writing a sex scene is not necessarily something you need, but it's better to have it and um, not need it than need it and not have it. There's a great example of kind of what I'm talking about in terms of monitoring what you do when you have sex or how to describe sex um, that you almost become a little self-aware of sights, smells, sounds. And once again, thesaurus. You can use that to kind of class it up and use really innovative wording um, so that it doesn't come across as jarring or smut. Um, The great example I'm thinking of actually is in Joe Hill's Nosferatu, in which uh, the gingerbread man character is masturbating, and talks about the um, doughy, yeasty, yeasty um, smell of his unwashed genitals, um, and I might be paraphrasing a bit there, but I do remember specifically the verb. Uh, I'm sorry, the adjective yeasty, because I had never thought of that smell, but it's something where writer experience. Obviously, it's going to sound gross, but like, pay attention to the sights, smells, sounds, tastes. You know, there's a lot of talk about uh, all the sensory stuff that's going on during the sex scene. And even when, at the very beginning, when he's in the jail cell and talks about uh, the salty tears mingling with the coppery taste of blood, a lot of sensory stuff uh, in in both kind of, uh, both realities in Self-Called Nowhere. But that's something that you can do and you don't have to freak out your partner and tell them you're using their body as research or reference, uh, file it away. Also might help to prolong the act. Instead of thinking of baseball, you're thinking of adjectives and paragraph structure and the proper syntax of describing what's happening to you, on you, around you. You know, take in like the tawny light that's coming in. Is it from a lamppost? Is it from the moon? Is are you having afternoon delight? And you know, maybe the blinds aren't counteracting um, you know, the the air is just as hot from the sun as it is with uh, sweat and love. Once again, that's that doesn't sound jarring. It's it's figuring out ways to write about the sensory experiences that doesn't sound gross or perverse. Um, or like I said, jarring to, you know, you could write total smut. You could write as disgusting, pornographic as you want, but it's got to service the piece that you're writing. It wouldn't have gone into this um, in Self Called Nowhere. In the Two Hearts piece I talked about earlier, yeah, there was more smut, but it worked because I was focused on the act itself, not what was going on around it. And I think... That kind of behooved the piece because there was no outer context to just the two characters. What was around them? Um, Well, apparently they were just fucking in a void because that's what I described. Or did not describe, as the case may be. So that would be my advice in terms of looking around your world for experience and um, ways to describe things. Just look around you. Be... Totally aware, even of yourself, of your partner, of things you're watching or reading. Um, If there is a sex scene or a love scene, dissect it. Look at how the writer wrote it. And if you liked it, why? And if you didn't, why not? It's that easy. And like I said, it's just something else you can use that if you have a scene, like I did in um, Strangest Kindness, the two characters have sex, um, Dante and AC that I was able to describe that. And um, in the sequel novel, which I did um, have started uh, working on, um, it opens with a post-coital scene between, well, I don't want to spoil that, um, Dante and someone else. But I know in my head I'm going to describe more of not the act, but the surroundings and the results thereof of the surroundings after the sex. Because I don't need to describe the sex, it's already after that. Um, But once again, looking around a room and going, are the clothes splayed? Were they put away? Were they picked up afterwards? You know, how do you act after sex? Do you go get a glass of water? Do you go to the bathroom? Do you light a cigarette? What happens? Always be mindful of yourself and your surroundings. And that goes for everything you're ever going to write. I mean, you're using your own experiences, not anyone else's. But in terms of writing a sex scene or a love scene, it's, it's weird, uh, but I think you'll notice that you can get better at writing those types of things if you show that situational awareness. And that's it. So remember, you keep writing, they'll keep reading, right on.